Hello and welcome to the Collective Wisdom Podcast, the podcast that explores how to be a wiser version of yourself. This is a podcast that helps you to tap into your own inner wisdom and find the answers within you for how to live your best life. I'm your host, Kat Preston. I'm a certified life coach and I help people to turn down the noise in their heads and tune into the wisdom in their hearts. Every week I'll be asking my guests to tell their stories about what they've learned along the way and share some of their wisdom with us. I'm so thrilled you can join us. This season of the Collective Wisdom Podcast is brought to you by Between Tracks Media Productions. Chris Hall Franzkoviak set up Between Tracks with a mission to make the process of setting up and producing a podcast as easy and pain-free as possible. He does all that and more with his super-organized system for file sharing, his tips and advice on everything from which equipment to buy to how to get the best sound quality. The service at Between Tracks is amazingly professional, reasonably priced, and above all, Chris is just a really nice guy to work with. I think it's fair to say that without his help, there wouldn't be a Collective Wisdom podcast. Wisdom, as we all know, is about understanding your own limitations, and mine on the technical side were pretty high. As ever, there's a link in the show notes for his website and contact details. Thanks so much to Chris at betweentracks.com. Hello there, my friends, and welcome to episode nine of the Collective Wisdom podcast. Wow, how did that happen? I've just been so grateful to have this project as one of the ways to keep me sane and feeling motivated now that we're kind of in what feels like one long, endless lockdown here in the UK. My guest today is another very personal one. Sim and I have been married for a very long time, so I feel like I know him almost better than I know anyone. And yet, funnily enough, when you sit down to share stories, you always seem to learn something new. What I did know already is that Sim isn't someone who finds asking for help easy. He's much more comfortable in the role of giving help to others. But as he describes in his story about kindness, it's really humbling and truly appreciated when other people see your need and reach out to you. It's been a whole month now since we recorded this interview and said our goodbyes, and we're still figuring out when we'll next see each other. I know we're all feeling that disconnection to a certain extent. It's been a tough year for everyone who's been distanced from family and friends. And my heart really, really goes out to you at the moment. But it's also been a chance to really reflect on how much they matter to us and just how much we really love them. This episode couldn't have come at a better time to thank all those friends in Singapore who've been so generous to Sim and therefore by extension to us as a family with all their kindness. You know who you are and we really, really appreciate you all. So with that, I'll hand you over to Sim. I've got a really special guest for you today. Sim is someone very close to my heart. Not only is he my husband of 27 years, how's that possible, and complete love of my life, but he's also the father to our three amazing kids who we like to say bring together the best bits in both of us. So what to say about Sim? Well, he turned his passion for geography and mapping into a career, starting out as a transport planner, working on new road networks in places as diverse as Malaysia and Bangladesh. And then his MBA opened up the world of strategy consulting and problem solving with roles that continue to take him all over the world. Today, Sim is the Chief Operating Officer of FWD, 
a relatively new Asia-based insurance company whose mission is to change the way people feel about insurance. And he's there continuing to do what he does best, which is to build great teams and then get out of the way and let them do their job. So that's the official bio. But what about the man behind the exterior role that he plays? Well, he's a passionate cook of the Keith Floyd School of Cookery, food from all over the world, always prepared and served with a glass of wine or two in hand and lots and lots of chilies, even if it's breakfast time. And his definition of a great day is definitely one where he's managed to complete the FT crossword. His love of words and their multiple meanings often spills over into some of the worst dad jokes you've ever heard. And no profile of Sim would be complete without a mention of the other major love in his life, Taylor Swift, who just keeps getting better and better, apparently. But when I think of Sim, the thing that really springs to mind is the fact that he still is and always will be that geographer at heart. He's never happier than when he's planning his next adventure, always with a map in his hand. I've been lucky enough to accompany him on so many of those adventures. And if there's a common theme and what I love about him the most, it's the energy and enthusiasm he brings to everything he does. So welcome to the podcast, Sim, and thanks so much for agreeing to do this for me. I really appreciate it. Tell me a bit more about, especially the food aspect of what this love of geography and and travelling all over the world has meant to you. Thank you for having me and uh, a pleasure to be here and to to watch how uh, how this evolves. Food and travel and geography are are three key, I guess, dimensions of, uh, of my life, and there's an awful lot of overlap between them. I used to keep a food diary, actually. When I travelled a lot with work across Asia in my 20s, I had a quite an accurate diary, believe it or not, of everything I ate because I ate such amazing food in the places I went to, particularly when I was not in the big cities, but, but roaming in large parts of emerging Asia across China and India and Indonesia and Philippines and you name it, but places I ate in small villages with local people as part of my work. And the food was quite extraordinary and nothing you could ever replicate uh, in a in a in a standard kitchen because the ingredients the the styles the cooking mechanisms were, were completely different and the spicing particularly unique to that area but fascinating and, and a real love of mine both as a as a cook and as someone who enjoys eating as well as uh, preparing food so I've had some of the most amazing meals of my life in the places where I've worked I used also to keep a list of the top ten meals I'd ever eaten at some point in that journey i think five of the top 10 were in japan uh, that's since evolved the top one at the moment is in uh, iceland bizarrely in helsinki so uh, you know that the, there's plenty more uh, restaurants in the world to to choose and to sample uh, but it's something i i really love and, and food is a representation of local culture local uh, norms standards people and it tells its own story. And I, uh, I love being around food. I'm, I love eating it, as I say, but I love cooking it and getting involved. I've, I've done a few cooking school classes in different places with different people. And uh, that's a real fascination. And within that, I have a, as the, my friends will, will, will tell you, I have a huge appetite for chilies. Spice generally, but particularly for chilies. And I, I do consume unhealthy amounts of fresh chopped chilli with pretty much every meal, breakfast, lunch and dinner, given half a chance. I carry them with me on my travels. That's how addicted I am. So that's my one vice is, uh, is, is uh, an excessive chilli consumption, I think. So for you, where, where do you think your most, you, you mentioned Japan and yeah, your most memorable meal has, has been? 
Well, I've had many meals with many different people. And of course, the, the, the joy of eating is not just the eating of it, but the people you're with and the conversations that you have around the table. And that's as true for me at home as it is in far-flung parts of the world. Uh, I'm at my most comfortable and at my happiest when I'm at my bench in the kitchen with a glass of wine with family around me and friends talking and cooking. I actually enjoy the cooking probably more than the eating in, in that environment. But I've had a, an incredible uh, what's called a kaiseke meal, a multi-course uh, Japanese meal with my brother in Kyoto in in, uh, in Japan outside Tokyo. That was an extraordinary evening uh, when I think both of us were just astonished by the variety and the depth of the flavours that the chef had cooked for us over the course of perhaps 13, 15 courses. The, the, the single best meal of my life so far, uh, rather selfishly, was when I was on my own. I, I transited uh, from... I was going from Hong Kong to Hels to Copenhagen, and I transited through Helsinki. And on the way back, uh, I, I looked up the opportunities, and I actually broke the journey for six hours and had the most extraordinary meal of my entire life. Where the restaurant was called Olo, Olo, and every single thing, apart from the wine, every single thing in that restaurant was sourced from within fifty miles of the restaurant in in Finland. And for those of you who've been to Finland, you'll know that once you get outside Helsinki, there's precious little in the way of forageable material. But nonetheless, they built a whole restaurant concept around it, and the food was genuinely mind-blowing in every way so yeah look, i could tell you stories about food for days and days and days uh, in rural china the most extraordinary things you eat alive and dead places like east malaysia where uh, some of the animals you eat are certainly very questionable from a sustainability perspective uh, but uh, no uh, yeah food is, is the uh, beyond my family food and, and, and travel and the loves of my life for sure yeah, and that's been a common theme. I think is it's, it doesn't have to be complex food. It doesn't have to be difficult to cook. It, it can just be a simple a simple meal. But yeah, sitting around the table and that's when the stories start and everybody uh, gets together is definitely something we've uh, we've done a lot of and celebrated together. So I'm I'm really um, interested. You know, this bit about the the one thing I would say you are really synonymous with is is building fantastic teams that's what i've seen in all of these roles that you've played you have shown a capacity to understand where your own limitations lie and bring in people who are often much better than you much better qualified than you to do a specific task and then let people get on with it what do you, what is it you see in people what do you look for in people when you're building those teams uh, well, a whole list of things actually, but um, it's it, it's a, it's a cliche to say that every organisation is around is about people. Um, it's a truism, of course, but it's also for me to answer your question directly. I look for people who work well together. I don't want individual genius people. Uh, I you know I, I want people who are collaborators, who are creative, and who enjoy what they're doing and have a good time doing it. Um, they've got to be smart, obviously, uh, and uh, I've been very fortunate to have worked with a lot of people. In fact, one of two most, uh, many, many pieces of feedback I've been given through my career, of course, but the two most important and certainly the ones which stuck with me earlier on, back to your early point, earlier sort of comment, uh, was one from an old boss of mine called Sandeep, who's now a good friend and who, uh, who we both know well. Uh, he said that uh, in, early on in my career as a consultant, I had to learn how to carry two conflicting ideas in my head at the same time. Because for me, I've never struggled making decisions about things and I've never struggled making tough choices. And I have typically chosen the what looks at least uh, up front as, as the harder path. Not because I know what's at the end of it, because, but precisely the opposite. Again, maybe that's the geographer in me, but because I don't know what's down that path. And that for me is much more interesting. If you say, look, there's two paths and you know what, this is the shorter one, it gets you to where you need to get to. Here's another path. We don't even know where it ends. 
and they go off a cliff. But you know, what am I going to do? I'm always going to go for the second, mm. and that's because I'm I, I mundanity terrifies me, and uh, you know, I I, I just want to learn new things constantly, get out there and 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 meet new people. I haven't forgotten your, I haven't dodged your people question. The other cr- critical piece of feedback I was given later on by one of my two great mentors in, in life, who was my boss for, for nine years, a guy called Mark, who you know, in many, one of many you know, quite tough conversations uh, with me, he pointed out quite early in my career in industry, having come from consulting, he said, Sim, you, you've got to understand that you've only ever worked with really smart people your entire life. Now you're in an organisation with some very smart people, but some not so smart people. And we need all of them. We can't just fire the ones who aren't so smart or aren't so effective. We've got to make the best out of them and, and work with them to make this a great organisation. And that really caused me to reflect because I hadn't, it was a real, it was, I came from a place of privilege having worked with a very smart bunch of people in a phenomenally successful at the time consulting firm. And, uh, caused me to sit back and think, well, yeah, I've, how do I become a better manager and a better leader? It's not by just finding genius people and, 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 and promoting them. It's by getting the best out of everybody at every level in the organization. And that comes with, with that comes a massive dose of humility. So to answer your question directly on, on teams, I have been fortunate to work with some terrific people. I look for people who are collaborative as well as being creative, not just individual contributors. And I set them clear guide rails. All of my teams will tell you that my standard language is around a, a wide road and high curbs. Uh, I'll set the curbs, or we'll set the curbs, uh, meaning the the governance rules, the 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 um, conditions that you can't breach. Um, and within that, you have enormous freedom to to roam, and to do what is needed to get the job done in terms of the how as well as the what. I'm not a micromanager. I, I like to think that I can drop very deep, very quickly into something if I need to, to help fix it. Uh, but I'm absolutely not going to be across everything because my role now would not allow me to do that. There's just too much going on. What I have got confidence in, and I have, I have outstanding people who work with me and, and they are much better than me at what they do. Uh, they're a combination of people from within the organization, in many cases, who I, people I've, I've spotted almost buried within the organization and, and rustle them up and, and elevate them within, give them a bigger role, put them in positions of, of vulnerability because it's easy to sit in the middle of a company and get paid well for doing your job. It's much harder to be dragged up from there and exposed to senior management, to the outside world, exposed as having not the, as not having all the answers because that role has been expanded and, and it's much less comfortable. You know, the minute you get comfortable, change your job uh, would be another one of my <laughs> sort of maxims. Um, whether that's within the company, it doesn't have to be leave, but whether it's within the company or outside it, yeah, comfort is 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 dangerous because uh, it breeds complacency. And all of my teams will tell you that um, they know that they're never going to be let, let alone long enough, or, or you know, to to become complacent. They're always um, run very hard, run very hot, but work together very well to resolve problems. For me, that's where the magic lies: is is in is making those things happen, and it's happening as it, you know, as it is right now at the moment. I was just dealing with something before this conversation, which is actually really exciting, and I'm just summoned that team to present to the group Exco next week on that particular issue. Being able to see people's individual strengths and playing to those strengths is at the heart of helping to ensure that they are working within roles that they do have the competence for and that that they can play to completely completely i mean it, it that's that's certainly true we all have strengths we all have weaknesses and it 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 pays all of us to remember both of those things at all times hence in my earlier comment around genuinely finding people who are far better than me at what they do and with certain guide rails in place letting them uh, get on and do that in a very uh, collaborative uh, and uh, and 
yeah sort of enjoyable manner you know work work can't be life's too short for work to be either boring and, and mundane as i mentioned or also unexciting and 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 flat it's got to be uplifting it's got to be energetic and it's got to be enjoyable in the sense that you can have a laugh now and again you can step back from what you're doing and have a bit of a sense of perspective and go out for a couple of drinks and uh, yeah just step away from it a little bit uh, but individual contributions are clearly critically important. Everyone does have, we all have our own, uh, not only strengths, but our own behaviours, our own beliefs. And it's worth respecting those. One of the stories I have been asking people to share on this podcast is an act of simple kindness. I think this year in particular, kindness and compassion have really come to the fore given that we've been under incredible duress with the pandemic and we've seen some amazing gestures that perhaps we wouldn't stop to notice in in more ordinary times. So what's the uh, story you wanted to share with us? Well, it's it, I'll, I'll, a number of stories from my, from my time over the past 12 months, I guess, uh, and one, I'll just call out one example, but it is only one example of, of many. As, uh, as, as you know, I've spent more time on my own last in the last year than I, I have done certainly for the last 30 years and um that's because i've been uh, in quarantine in hotels i spent five months of last year in hotels in singapore and, and elsewhere four weeks of which were in solitary confinement and during that that time when i was either sitting in a hotel or sitting in an empty apartment on my own my friends and, and colleagues in singapore were extraordinarily supportive uh, completely unsolicited but helped out by popping around when they could they weren't always allowed to of course by dropping things off by popping in uh, checking in on me through whatsapp when they couldn't visit in person because we were all in in lockdown and really, I felt very humbled by that. And there was just one example I'll, I'll share with you. Uh, a colleague of mine who uh, had himself uh, asked me for help when he was looking. He, I'd already done my first block of two weeks of solitary confinement coming back into Singapore in a hotel room. And, uh, and he was about to go through the same process coming in from Indonesia to Singapore and was quite anxious and not having done it before. And he asked me for some tips. And I sent him a whole bunch of information on what he should bring, some practical things like having a real plate and knives and forks and, a, and perhaps a wine glass if he was going to drink rather than eating out of the plastic stuff that the hotel gave, gave you at the time, just to make it a bit more human as an experience uh, to bring a sharp knife so he could cut fruit. Anyway, I, I'd given him some, some, some various tips. And I guess by way of reciprocity, when I came in for my second stint uh, into a, an even dingier hotel than the first one and uh, was midway through that, he found out where I was and, uh, and sent me to the room a, a home-cooked South Indian meal, which he and his wife had created for me, which was the most beautiful gesture and, and, uh, and actually was incredibly welcome because, believe me, when you're halfway through two weeks of uh, being on your own in a hotel room and you're not allowed even to open the door to anybody or speak to anybody in, per you know, in person and eating the same pap food for most of the time, particularly for someone who loves real food, to have a home-cooked meal of such beautiful flavours and spices and varieties uh, was a real privilege and, a, and an absolute pleasure. And uh, I'll retain, remain in, in eternally thankful to Anantha and his wife for not only preparing and, and delivering the food, but for identifying the need, uh, which, and, you know, and, and I certainly needed help at that time. So, yeah, oh, that's small act, but very kind. I love that this is a, an act of kindness that actually really saw you for, you know, someone who is just so passionate about food and, and that was, yeah, the, the simple way to, to really make a big difference to you. And I'm so grateful to you for sharing that story right now because it, it gives me the chance to, to give a huge 
shout out in in public to all the amazing friends that we've got in Singapore who have moved heaven and earth to look after you. I haven't been able to get there since I travelled back in March. And people have been so kind, so generous. We've had people who've gone and picked up exercise bikes and dropped them off. And there's not been a weekend gone by where somebody hasn't reached out to me or to you and said, you know, does Sim need a meal or come around for dinner? And I know you've been able to reciprocate lately, but it's, um, yeah, we, we appreciate you so much. And it's been heartwarming to, to be able to say thank you to everyone. You know who you are. So Absolutely. No, yeah, and I echo that completely. And uh, yeah, you didn't you do know who you are, and um, I'm very grateful. Yeah, I think it's been a, it's a, it's reminded me of just how much it's been such a crazy, crazy time. And we've found ourselves in situations that we certainly didn't envisage at the beginning of 2020. But that resilience and the, the compassion and kindness that those little gestures that have come out. I mean, there's been so many stories throughout this time of small, small gestures like that that can make a huge difference to people. So, so yeah, thank you for sharing. That's an amazing story. And and just a testament to the fact that, yeah, people, people do notice, people do see. I think they have a greater understanding of those struggles when they've been through it themselves. Phenomenal. So... You know, you've mentioned the, for you, as one of the biggest challenges of 2020 was that long stint of being in quarantine. You had to do two separate solitary confinements. And and even when you were out of the hotel quarantine, there was an element of being away from family. And we were just all in a situation where we couldn't really change the situation. So what is the challenge that you've brought as a story? Yeah, I, I struggle with this one as well. But this this question is one that you get in every business school. I did a lot of case interview preparation training for kids at business school after I left, and and, all, and similarly with uh, with new recruits into the companies I've, I've worked for. When you're sitting around having the, the the so-called fireside chats, that's normally the first question you ask is, you know, what what big challenges have, have you overcome? And and because people are looking for guidance and and yeah and, and wisdom on that. I have been very fortunate in that I don't think I haven't uh, overcome any gigantic challenges. I I work with people, I know people, you know people who have overcome far greater challenges than I've Mm, ever ever overcome. Uh, Physical, mental, emotional, psychological, geographical, uh, you name it. So I feel very blessed that in, 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 you know, I was I was brought up well uh, by a loving family. Um, we always had enough money to to live well, not lavishly, but well. I was supported through university. I got a good job. I got started getting paid, and I haven't really looked back since then. So I I, I feel very fortunate. So in truth, no, I think people listening to this, you know, I I I, I can't hand on heart say that I've overcome any massive challenges, and I know people who have done far more. Last year was tough. I mean, the challenge now every time is leaving here. Uh, as we sit in in rural England, to go back to Asia, not as a family this time, having done that for many years, that's challenging logistically and financially. Just having to put three little kids on a plane, you know, at dead of night, and having them run a, run havoc around the plane for the whole journey, um, which they've done on occasion. But um, that nowadays, it's the, the, the challenge is, is saying goodbye and going out on my own, particularly in the current environment where I genuinely don't know how long I'll be away for. I guess it's a bit like, you know, every sailor must do that, right? Every merchant goes away for long periods. So this, again, is not, it's nothing specific to me, but I personally find that a challenge, not for me, um, but a challenge to, to know that I am, if you like, abandoning the family, to go and do something important, yes, but 
but walking away from the family when I don't strictly have to, that has been very difficult for me in the last year and it isn't getting any easier actually. And how, how do you, yeah, how do you resolve it in your own head? You know, this, this thing about not having to, but then we've talked a lot about, well, what's the alternative? We just stay still or hole up, but actually... That yeah, well, it doesn't feel like an option. No, and as I've said, that, that's the route to oblivion. You know, get, getting into a, a sort of humdrum routine for me is the route to oblivion. And I know I, I would not be anything like my best if, if that were the case. So I would actually, you know, I'd be insufferable, I think, if uh, if we ever got to that point. No, I think clarity of purpose is the answer. I know that what we're doing in the on, another, on the other side of the world is important. I think it's important for the 7 million customers that we have. It's important for the 7,000 staff that we have. And it's important for my own teams. But it, it's the right thing to do. We are genuinely trying to change the way that um, that people feel about what is a critically important aspect of their financial lives. And even if they don't understand it, we need to help them understand it. So that that keeps me going. And that, that I think, is, is a valiant purpose. It's not just going out there to make a ton of money and coming back. It's going out there to help people find protection that they need for their life and their health and to help their families survive if something happens to them. And uh, and that happens a lot in, the, in that part of the world, of course. So we're doing good work. Providing for that financial security and yeah, Well, but, but more than just financial, uh, uh, financial and emotional and, uh, and societal, actually. It, mm. It's providing a, you know, in, in most parts of Asia, emerging Asia, the first, this is ch- starting to change now, but for the whole of the last 30, 40 years, longer, the first financial product that a person has typically is not a bank account, it's not a credit card, it's a life insurance policy. And it's typically gathered by someone on a push bike who goes around door to door and collects the equivalent of perhaps 50 cents or a dollar a week off a family as soon as they can start saving, which is a lot of money, given what they're earning quite often in, in, in most parts of emerging Asia, and, and collect that in a little book and then send it back to the company. And in the event that something happens to that person, they get hit by a bus, they get a, they get a disease, they fall off a building, a scaffolding rig or whatever it might be, um, or they more often than not fall off a motorbike, tragically that happens far too often, then that same little guy on a bicycle or woman on a bicycle, and more often than not it's a woman, not a man, who, who is the sales force uh, for in, in these rural areas, will go back and they they, are, they pay money, which will fund the funeral, which will give the, the family who've lost their breadwinner enough to start back on their feet and get mm. going again. And mm. that's a critically important role that we as private insurers play in society in that part of the world. Uh, and I don't say that lightly. It genuinely is a, um, a, a role that governments can't play and that people just don't have the means to, to do themselves, not just for life, but for health as well. We're a life and, and health insurer. And so that if the choice is having no health coverage, because again, if you're in these rural areas in, in large parts of emerging Asia, you haven't got the access to a clinic or a, a local doctor's office. You might get on a bus and get some questionable treatment in a public facility in, in some remote location, or we can help you to get the right quality of treatment at the right price. That doesn't mean put you into a spanking, shiny, you know, uh, glass and steel building with the best clinicians in the world, much as we'd like to do that, but at least get you to a to a trusted, known clinic or facility where you'll get the right quality of medical advice and then holding people's hands as they get back on their feet. They get the treatment they need at the right price. They then get back on their feet, back into society, back to their families, back earning again. Those are critically important roles that are not provided by the public sector. So it's left to the private sector to provide. And that for me is a purpose worth pursuing. And I think, yeah, in in times like these, it's become even more, we've become more aware of the need for that safety net for some sort of protection because whole families are are being 
devastated by the whole that one death from COVID or something related to that can leave within the whole community, as you, as you said. Yeah, historically there's been this, and I hate this phrase, I don't agree with it, but it's nonetheless a sort of stock phrase in the industry, is that insurance is sold and not bought, meaning no one actually really wants to buy it, but pushy sales practices force people to buy it. That was the old way of doing things, for sure, in, in, in large parts of the world. I think there have been very, very few good things that have come out of this last 12 months um, and, and the pandemic. One of them, though, is a much greater heightened awareness of the need for protection for life and health. And so, I mean, for example, I'm sure we're not the only one, but we've had a huge surge in inbound inquiries from customers not waiting to be approached by the person on the bicycle, metaphorically, but who realise that they don't have enough coverage or they're anxious about whether their current coverage covers them in the event of a diagnosis or a quarantine event or whatever. And we've gone out there and explained to people that in many cases, their current policies do already cover them for for COVID-19. We've been able to sell policies to people who realise that they need to either get a policy first of all or increase their coverage and able to help people provide that, that reassurance. And there's another sort of cliche phrase about insurance being providing peace of mind. I mean, it does do that if it's done well, but that, it can't just be that. We have to show value as an industry beyond just providing peace of mind. And I think the way we can do that is by helping, as I mentioned, people who do get have a life event, they lose a family member, they get sick or they have an accident or one of their, their own family members does. We help them get back on their feet quicker. We get them the right treatment at the right price in the right place and get them back as productive members of society. And that is a massive contribution that we, I think, as an industry can make to the success of of the markets where we operate. Mm. And I love, you know, bringing it back to what you said around overcoming a challenge, that clarity of purpose, which is so often, if you know why you're doing something, then the steps towards it just fall away. You know, the challenges that you, you manage to meet them head on and they become part of that process which is, yeah, great story. I'm uh, impressed. Yeah, and if it's, and if it's a noble process, uh, purpose, then that makes it much easier. And we all have purpose. But I think if it's genuinely something which, you know, as, I, as I believe, we are helping communities to get to, to strengthen. We're helping individuals to become better family members by worrying less about their financial security and being able to enjoy living or celebrate living, as we say, and more with their, with their families, with their friends, uh, with their work colleagues or whatever, then, yeah, that, that's a noble role to play and um, I'm certainly very proud of the work that we do in that. Mm, mm. It is a call to action as well. That's why much as it will pain me tomorrow to get back on a plane and fly to Dubai, it's the right thing for me to do. And uh, if it weren't, I wouldn't be on the plane. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and and I think that's something we've talked about multiple times, especially this year where it's been each time there's been another outbreak and, and another challenge in the way, another obstacle. It's kind of, okay, let's just get back to the focus of why we do this and, and what's important, what matters. And you mentioned, uh, yeah, celebrating life, which at the end of the day is kind of, for me, what it's all about. You know, th- th- you have the hard times, you, you you put in the hard work, and then there's time to sit back, reflect and celebrate the good stuff. And for me, often music is all part of that, especially for us as a family. We mentioned um, your love of Taylor Swift uh, at the beginning of this interview, but I'm intrigued to hear the song that you've chosen that takes you to that special place. Yeah, well, with that intro, I couldn't possibly choose a Taylor Swift song because I, <laughs> I think 
everyone listening to this would think I was completely mad, but I have to say, I, not to go on about Taylor Swift, but having watched her journey from um, from you know whatever it is, seven or eight albums now, and and the, the work with a couple of hiccups along the way, as we all have in our careers, but the work, her work, is getting better and better and richer and richer. So I, I genuinely am a, a big fan. Uh, Hannah, our daughter, bought me for my Christmas present this year a beautiful. 12-inch uh, uh, version, double album of the new uh, Taylor Swift album, Folklore, which is her best work ever. So that's something I'll cherish forever. I um, did tell you there are three of us in this <laughs> but, no, but music's something for me. And I heard you mention this in another one of your your discussions, uh, your, your podcast discussions. Uh, music's about lyrics, and I can't listen to music without listening to the words. And that sounds ludicrous, but actually that's a major constraint for me because it means I can't, run with music because I can't think about anything else when I'm running and apart from what the, the words are saying it means I can't sit and do a crossword the music in my ears drives me nuts I can I'm a put a one trick pony when it comes to the I, I can do one thing at a time well and that's about all and I can't listen to music and process other information uh, so when I'm running and I'm listening to music I'll go out of rhythm I'll, my breathing will get all screwed up and and You'll fall over. <laughs> and as you know, I run a lot. I won't fall over, but I'll knack myself out or, or something will happen. No, so I, I listen to music now and again. I, I do like my Taylor Swift. The song I've chosen for you, though, is an, is an odd one because it evokes a certain memory in me and it was brought to life uh, in Hong Kong about, I'd guess, five or six years ago now. Uh, Suzanne Vega mm. uh, is the artist, someone I've listened to all my adult life. And one of my great regrets was that in my first week at the LSE back in... 1988 in Freshers Week. She had played there, I think, the previous week, and I hadn't known. And uh, as, as a young 18-year-old, then fascinated by music and in love with Suzanne Berger's music, missed that opportunity. Uh, I love most of her music, but there's one song uh, that uh, that she plays and wrote called Gypsy. Uh, it's a very uplifting song. It's a song about ob- ob- observing people's idiosyncrasies and the memories those evoke. And uh, anyway, to bring, the, this, bring this full circle, she played that song at a little concert I attended in Hong Kong on my own. You must have been away uh, one summer about five or six years ago. And it was a tiny little, it's called the Black Box, I think, a little room, a concert room. It only holds about 150, 160 people. So it feels like an intimate, uh, unplugged concert. And she played this song halfway through. And uh, to, to, to complete the story, I, I, I was still on Twitter then before I ran away from Twitter as the most dangerous thing known to humanity. And I think that's been proven in the past 12 months. But... Uh, I tweeted her the following day to say, thank you, you just sang my favourite song. And she tweeted back, (laughs) (laughs) saying, oh, thanks for the feedback or something. I was really sweet. So, um, yeah, so my song is Gypsy by Suzanne Vega. It's a beautiful song. Fantastic, fantastic. And she'll be a great addition to the Collective Wisdom podcast. So thanks for adding that, my lovely. And because I get to be able to grant special wishes, because this is my podcast, I don't think it would be complete unless we got you to choose that one favourite song of Taylor Swift's to also add to the list. Well, I feel very honoured to, to be given two two songs uh, to, to add to your playlist. There are a great many great songs from Taylor Swift. There are some pretty bad ones as well, I'll admit, but uh, mostly in some of her sort of, uh, well, a couple of albums ago. But I'd have to choose one from, from her now not latest album because she released two this year, but she released an album in the middle of uh, lockdown, which she wrote 
produced uh, pretty much herself uh, with some help from from others but very much she, she owned the process it was called folklore and it's just a beautiful album and pretty much every song on that i think would be a candidate for my for my shortlist but of those there's a lovely song called seven which is about her when she was seven years old describing her growing up uh, and playing in the rural areas of Pennsylvania where she lived. And um, it reminded me, that song reminds me of my own uh, life growing up in, uh, in rural England and doing some of the same things, playing on swings, playing in rivers, climbing trees, uh, generally mucking about. And that's particularly poignant uh, for me because I was seven years old when I first met you. <laughs> that's true, actually, yeah, yeah. We actually went to the same primary school, which is something we don't chat about very often, but... <laughs> Oh, that's really sweet. So, no, I'm very, very glad that we can add uh, Taylor Swift and give her pride of place where she belongs on a on a playlist that's connected to Sim Preston. And I'd love it if you'd just share the story about how you so nearly came to meet her when she was uh, she was doing the concert for AIA. Yeah, it's a bit like triathlons. I came to Taylor Swift quite late in life and um, uh, didn't really get to know the music much until I was probably halfway through my my time in that company. And by coincidence, uh, one of my good friends and close colleagues, a guy called Bill, who at the time was overseeing our Malaysian uh, operation, uh, had commissioned Taylor Swift to come in and do a concert. As an insurer, as context, we have a, most insurers have a large agency force of, of agency salespeople, and we put on all sorts of events for them as motivational camaraderie building and, uh, and promotional events. And uh, Bill had arranged for Taylor Swift to fly into Kuala Lumpur and do a concert. And he actually asked me if I'd like to come down and watch it. And at that point, I wasn't sufficiently familiar with her to, to take him up on the offer. And it's, it'll be forever a great regret because had I had I gone down and watched the concert, I would have met her behind the scenes and uh, I could even have taken my then. She would have been very young, but maybe seven-year-old daughter with me. So yeah, missed opportunity, but maybe it'll happen again at some point in the future. Yeah. So Taylor, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast and... Yeah, you know where to find us. Uh, if, if you come, I'll do the interview. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. So as a wrap up, we, we're here to talk about collective wisdom, what we all bring to the table. And I'm really um, intrigued to hear of all the pieces of wisdom. This is something that often it's about something you would say to yourself, a younger version of yourself, perhaps, because it is very difficult to give generic wise advice you know who are you talking to and why are you why are you telling them that but yeah far away well as i mentioned right at the beginning i'm i'm loath to to preach because everyone has their own priorities and and their own values and their own purpose I, it links back to my comments around choosing the harder path be out there get out there um get on the plane um and i Greta Thunberg won't have, thank me for saying that, but you know, travel, see the world, uh, be a geographer, learn how to be a geographer, observe the things around you. Drives me nuts when we're driving along in a new place with our kids and they're looking down at their screens. I'm like, look out the bloody window, please. <laughs> I know. can test that the yes, there's a, lots of that. It's you know, it's a new world out there, and and you won't learn unless you, you know, open your mind uh, to those new experiences, new ideas, new ways of working, new cultures, new languages, new foods. Yeah, just be open to all those new things and choose the harder path and be willing to put yourself, not in harm's way, to be clear, but at personal risk uh, to to be the best that you can be because it, you won't be the best that you can be unless you do put yourself in deeply uncomfortable situations and figure out how to get out of them. That's the way to learn. That's the way to 
build life experience and the way to teach that, I think, uh, and, and be an effective teacher and coach and guide to others. Fantastic advice. Thank you, my love. And yeah, in terms of life experience, this is a great opportunity for me to say thank you for often taking those risks. And I will just sort of follow on behind going, okay, then, but I probably wouldn't have had the courage to take them on my own. It's certainly been a life full of excitement and adventure and amazing opportunity. So I'm just going to take this time to say, I hope you know how much you matter to me. Thank you. And well, likewise, and let me, the risk of making people vomit is uh, is to listen to the podcast. But no, let me take the opportunity to say thank you for not only accompanying me on the journey, that's a very self-centered way of describing it, but I have thank you for being the other half of this amazing journey that we are very much still on and uh, we have a long way still to go. Absolutely. Lots of love. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. There are almost a million podcasts out there to choose from, so I really appreciate you for choosing this one and spending your valuable time with me today. If you found it helpful, I would be truly grateful if you would rate and review it as it helps others to find us. And if you haven't already, you can hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts to be sure of getting every episode sent to you. You can find all the resources we talk about and more about my guests in the show notes over at collectivewisdom.podbean.com or you can find me on Instagram at collectivewisdompod where I'd love to hear any feedback, suggestions for new guests or comments that you have. I'd love to hear from you. And if you're interested to know more about how my coaching can help you, you can find more about that on my website at catpreston.com. Thank you so much for joining me.